Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a project of the unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. White evangelicals overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump in his campaigns and presidency. White Christian nationalism was a driving force in efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And many of the worst reactionary movements in the country, powering the growth of the far right's influence, have their source in evangelical America. This is all, frankly, a little perplexing, given the peaceful, love-thy-neighbor core of Jesus' moral teachings. But it's nothing new. In her fascinating and troubling book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, Kristen Cobus Dumay traces the emergence of the Christian radical right, particularly its patriarchal and toxically masculine forms, from its origins in the middle of the 20th century through to Trump. It's a story that's often appalling, but also helps us to understand much of our contemporary political scene. One of the things that I think might be surprising to people who come from a more secular background or at least not an an evangelical background, didn't grow up in evangelical culture and so on, is how much the evangelicalism that seems to be the default right now. Like I think for a lot of us, we just think of kind of characters like Jerry Falwell as representative of what it simply means to be an evangelical Christian. And so one of the surprising things I think about your book is how that brand of evangelicalism is both kind of historically contingent and relatively new. So what did what did evangelicalism look like before the rise of what you call this this John Wayne version? As a historian, you know, you can go back, you can just keep going back in time. And evangelicalism historically was a revival movement, a revival movement, popular movement that spread beyond any evangelical or any denominational boundaries, uh, kind of popular populist movement in many cases. And it was many things. It was this kind of reinvigoration of a personal relationship with God, this very personal faith commitment, not just institutional. And uh, in many cases, it actually, in the 19th century, disrupted social hierarchies. Because if the Holy Spirit, you know, anybody had access to the Holy Spirit and this kind of rebirth, this conversion experience. And so men and women and people of different social classes and races could be empowered by the Spirit. And so in the 19th century, you will have evangelical feminism and abolitionism and a number of kind of uh, social outworkings of this transformative faith. That really bridged from kind of conservative to what we would call progressive and everywhere in between. So evangelicalism has always been many things. And one of the things I trace in my book is how a particular form of evangelicalism that was socially, culturally, politically conservative became the dominant strand in the second half of the 20th century. And so what did gender roles look like? Like how, because that's, I mean, that's the the core argument of your book is this kind of toxic view of, of gender roles that arose. Um, but how did, how did these non, 
John Wayne style evangelical movements think about the role of gender? Yeah, the um, this conservative white evangelicalism has really emphasized the last half century or more a very uh, patriarchal model of society. So the idea that God has ordained male leadership and not just men should be pastors or elders of churches, but the rulers of the home, that is the call of women to submit to masculine authority. And, um, you know, there are varying degrees, historically speaking, many Christians throughout history have uh, certainly embraced various iterations of you know, patriarchal leadership. But in the post-war era, this is when we see this idea of um, masculine leadership, female submission, and gender difference as really moving to the center of evangelical identity and to their understanding of the social order. And what's important to understand the story of Jesus and John Wayne and to understand modern evangelicalism is to understand how these views of gender were linked to Christian nationalism. And so the idea of um, God made men to be strong as protectors and providers, but the emphasis is really on protection. In the Cold War, there's a communist threat. It's a military threat, right? And it was. <laughs> and um, and what you see is in in their writings for you know Christian living, how to be a Christian man, how to be a Christian woman, how to have sex, right? They love writing about sex. Infused in these teachings is the idea that you need strong, rugged, masculine, aggressive men to be rulers of the home so that they can also be defenders of the nation, of the Christian nation. And all of this gets wrapped up together and at a certain point really becomes unmoored from traditional kind of biblical teachings on war, on peace, and a number of others, and becomes really its own thing and very much sets conservative evangelicals against other Americans seeing other Americans who don't hold to this particular set of values as not true Americans, as undermining Christian America, and really as enemies. So was that the catalyst then for for this new movement? Was the, the launch, the start of the Cold War? That is a critical kind of uh, catalyzing moment here. You can you can go back earlier. You can certainly go back to the early 20th century, the, the 1910s, 1920s, where you see this fundamentalist modernist division take hold and contemporary evangelicals are kind of heirs to the fundamentalist side for the most part, although not it, it's it's a more more complicated story. But uh, so you can go back there and there is this kind of reactionary movement, anti-modern movement, particularly focused around gender and sexuality that that goes back to the 1910s and 1920s. Even then, you know, you, you can have other uh, evangelicals in the early 20th century who, who again, were, were feminists. Uh, many of the women suffragists were evangelicals and they were drawing on their faith. And so, uh, I mean, one thing that history does very much is it it shows yes, you can find some continuities if you're looking for them, but you also find a lot of change over time. And when you when you recognize that, you can start to say, okay, why in this moment did these evangelicals interpret the scriptures in this way? And what I will say is that's simply what we do as historians. But for evangelicals themselves, uh, there's a lot of resistance to that because evangelicals themselves will root all of their values their contemporary values uh, in history, in tradition, and in the scriptures. So for them, everything they hold to is timeless and biblical. 
and that's that. Whereas a historian's going to say, actually, you know, it didn't always used to be this way. Let's look how it came to be this way. And that's been an incredibly disruptive thing, I think, that this book has done in evangelical spaces. I I found the link between the rise of um, this sort of patriarchal thinking and anti-communism particularly fascinating. Uh, and And what I was wondering about is how much because it seems like for a lot of not just the evangelical right, but a lot of just the right in America in in kind of the time, the 50s and 60s and the, the height of the Red Scare and so on, uh, they talked about communism as – communism was kind of this anti-free enterprise and a military threat and it was the – that was, that was the, the rhetorical framing. But it seemed like what they really meant in a lot of cases was – we oppose the civil rights movement. We oppose women's liberation and we oppose workers' rights or all – like those kinds of things and and then we're going to call those things communists or it's the communists who are talking about race relations and women's rights and so on. So I guess the question is like can we tease that out? Like how much of it was really the fear of communism as like Marxist ideology and and the institutions that embodied it versus this is kind of a, a sublimated critique of the civil rights movement? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in the in the 40s, uh in the 50s, right, you, you see evangelicals like Billy Graham you know, really at the forefront of uh, this anti-communist rhetoric, rooting this in uh, American identity and Christianity. And uh, in the late 40s, that becomes very convenient to to those interested in mobilizing Americans post-World War II to resist communism, right? There's there's, propaganda is necessary to get most Americans who are like, whoo, that war's done. Glad that's over, right? And the government has to say, no, we need you to stay mobilized, to stay vigilant, because now we have a cold war on our hands. And so evangelicals were were very useful, you know, in the 50s to somebody like Eisenhower. and, And you see this as kind of mutual affirmation here. And it helps evangelicals move into the center of society, but in um, in center of political power too, in and out of the White House, right, Billy Graham. But um, where what's important to realize is they weren't actually that different from many other Americans in holding some of these core values of anti-communism, pro-traditional values. This is kind of Leave It to Beaver era, right? Consensus, and it, it's it really is the civil rights movement that starts to sever this. Um, notion of consensus. And that really hits conservative white or, or, or Southern evangelicals hard. Um, you know, majority of white Southerners happen to be evangelicals. And that's something historiographically, we usually kind of keep these as separate narratives, but they're not, right? These are the same people we're talking about. And so very much uh, civil rights seems disruptive to the social order and to um, white evangelicals in the South, particularly idea of what is God ordained, what is true. And um, and so civil rights does start to kind of fracture this understanding of who we are as a nation. And it very much fractures evangelicals' idea of who they are. Um, and that America is God's special nation, and that Americans are innocent, and that they are innocent, and they are righteous, and they are good, right? This is what that us versus them, how that works. Civil rights movement strikes at the heart of that mythology. 
Uh, and, and there's strong resistance to that. Uh, but by the 60s then, and then you can add the feminist movement and you can add the anti-war movement, also very, very important during this era. I was really surprised when I went back in the sources and saw just how prevalent kind of grappling with Vietnam and its repercussions was inside evangelical spaces. And there too, you know, they're holding on to this idea of American goodness, American greatness. And Vietnam just kind of blows that up for many Americans. And that's when evangelicals double down and become strongly pro-military. That too is a very recent uh switch in the in in World War II, many evangelicals were very skeptical of the military. Into the 1950s, that was the case. But all this comes together and evangelicals then hold to these values as and and yes, it's all under this kind of anti-communist, um, pro-America um kind of umbrella, but um there are many other issues that start driving it, certainly. Um, but yes, this idea that um you know, feminists are Marxists and civil rights activists are Marxists. And you're hearing that now in the anti-CRT rhetoric. I've been called a Marxist frequently in these spaces. Um, there's, as a historian, you could just, you know, kind of laugh and say there's nothing new under the sun. This connection to nationalism is, is really interesting because it seems to run – Jesus wasn't an American. Um, and, Be careful with and, that. and Christianity was this global I mean, is is this global thing, and everyone is created by God in His image, and and so it seems to be, and and then the militarism. I mean, I am not a I'm I'm a Buddhist, but I have read the Bible, and I. Christ doesn't come across to me as like a Chuck Norris figure, you know, like how does that how does that connection to specifically like American nationalism arise given how kind of orthogonal it seems to be to basic Christian principles? You know, if you go back to the early 20th century, a lot of conservative Protestants were pacifists. In the First World War, and this is something that I, I sketch out very briefly in the book, just to set up things haven't always looked like they 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 do now. And again, uh, for for those who claim that all their values are eternal, timeless, God ordained, that's um, I, I, that's controversial to even say that. And uh, so, this nationalism, many conservative Protestants rejected Christian nationalism in the early 20th century because look around you. Does this look like a Christian nation to you? Or what is it to be a Christian? It's to have your soul saved. A nation doesn't have a soul. So what are you, you even talking about, right? This is the kind of rhetoric you would hear often in the early 20th century in these conservative Protestant spaces. And uh, that starts to shift over the course of the First World War. Um, and at that time, actually, it was as likely for liberal Protestants to be Christian nationalists, to think America had a special role to make the world safe for democracy and so on. And liberal Protestants uh, embraced uh, militarism. And they came out at the end of the First World War as chastened, uh, whereas many conservatives ended up emboldened and embraced militarism and also were feeling that they were being increasingly displaced. Uh, from their churches with the, uh, you know, fundamentalists hadn't seized control of the churches. They felt marginalized. And so by the 1940s, 
by kind of taking on this militaristic posture, this patriotic posture, uh, Christian nationalism gave them a way to situate themselves once again at the center of American society. And the, the late 40s and early 50s was just the perfect time for that. And it's it's really remarkable to see just how marginalized they perceive themselves to be in the 1930s compared to just 15 years later, how they are seeing themselves, how they are appearing um, by the 1950s, right? This really dramatic change. And so Christian nationalism was key to that, which is why then with the civil rights movement, with the anti-war movement, with Americans questioning this nationalism and militarism is a threat to their power, right? It's many things, but it is also a threat to their power, which is why they react with such force against that. Um, but yeah, Christian nationalism really is um, is key to understanding evangelicals, and it's getting all this attention today, right? It's in the media's discovered it, and and now Marjorie Taylor Greene is claiming that. But what I will say is that historians, you know, we've used this kind of term for a long time to just explain uh, a posture that is not at all new in evangelical spaces. And one important thing that it does is because they believe that America was founded as a Christian nation. And they believe that their version of Christianity, you know, was at the center. So they kind of, you know, anachronistically read back contemporary evangelicalism into the founding fathers. But because of that, there is this burden that they feel to make sure that all of the nation's laws reflect God's laws, reflect God's and their interpretation of God's laws in such a way that the nation will be blessed. Because if they don't bring the laws in alignment with God's laws, the idea is that the nation will be cursed. It will not have God's blessing. So what they, you know, this is not a live and let live kind of philosophy at all. It is, we know what's better for all of you Americans. If you're not with us, you're against us, but we will use coercion so that we can bring our country in line with what it was always meant to be. And in the long run, it's going to be good for you too. That's a really interesting framing of it because it you know one of the core arguments for political freedom political liberalism is we as long as people aren't hurting you in their behaviors they should be free to live their lives and this this is like a way to route around that argument by basically saying you you might not be physically hurting me you're not punching me you're not but your sinful lifestyle is going to do grave harm because you're upsetting God and he's going to punish all of us. But that seems to be a real problem for arguing for political liberty because you can't – now you have to basically – if you want to say, no, I should be free to live my life as I want to, you have to like defeat their metaphysical priors. Yes. And you see that now in, in, you know, I watch these conversations quite closely, people who are self-identifying as Christian nationalists. And I should say the vast majority of people who might fit that category don't self-identify as Christian nationalists. They simply see their values and their political posture as just Christian. It's just what Christians do and ought to do, right? But there are some who are self-identifying as Christian nationalists. And you can see this rhetoric very clearly that, uh, no, everybody's behavior has to be brought in line here. And when I first started researching this book, which was actually like almost 15 years ago, I'd started and then set it aside. And I, I first was just looking at 
of these ideas of very kind of militant Christian manhood and where those were coming from. And I was seeing they're coming from popular culture. And I was intrigued with how that lined up with, with evangelical foreign policy and militarism, right? That's kind of where it started. But very quickly, I was surprised by just how anti-democratic these teachings actually were. And, and I don't know why I was surprised. I kind of grew up not quite evangelical, but evangelical adjacent. I was somewhat familiar with some of these people, these teachings. But when I went back and looked at the sources as a historian, it was jarring. The idea of social hierarchy, the idea of authority, of women must obey men, right? Wives, their husbands must submit to that authority, children to their parents, um, you know, people to their pastors, and then to the God-ordained authorities in their lives. And that's that's a really important adjective there, the God-ordained authorities. Because if they can say that, no, this, this lawmaker, this president, right, is not God-ordained, then you don't need to submit to their authority. But if they're claiming that it is, that this is your proper authority, your husband, right, even if he's abusive, you have to submit. That is your 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 call and to obey the authorities God has placed above you is to obey God. This is how that thinking works, right? And so you take that then and you you look at democracy. You look at, you know, a, a pluralistic society, there it does not fit. On the subject of abuse, that's the one of the other really shocking strains throughout this is I mean there were the there were the republic the the various televangelist sex scandals which i remember as a as a kid in the 80s i remember hearing these various things you know about these things uh, and so there was that high profile thing but but another strain of this is just how much like domestic abuse runs through at kind of every every level um and how it i mean it shows up in the later portions of the book and conversations about the really not being too upset about Trump's behavior. Um, and and reading it, I just was like, why – I understand why evangelical men can be on board with an ideology that says they should be at the top. They should have all this power. Their wives owe them sex and support and submission and all of that. Like that's – you, you can deal. see kind of the, the – yeah. But why – what do the evangelical women think about this? Yeah, uh, it's it's a good question. I, I and there there are many ways to approach this, and I just have really one chapter in Jesus and John Wayne that focuses on women, and um, it doesn't kind of bring that up to the present. So my my next book that I'm writing right now is kind of the flip side, and it's it's looking at evangelical femininity. It's called Live, Laugh, Love, and so kind of how that that side works to prop up this um, kind of militant patriarchy. But first, it's important to realize that generations of women and girls now have been taught this is simply how you are a faithful Christian. And I think it's important to keep that in mind that there are many women and girls who love Jesus, who believe the Bible is true, and then they are taught over and over again by their pastors, by their parents, by their schools, their homeschools. This is simply how you're Christian. And it's this us versus them, you know, and everybody else is a false teacher. Everybody else is dangerous. So it's, you know, don't even go out there. Don't even listen to other people. It's so dangerous out there. So there are a lot of people 
thousands and thousands of people, right? Tens of thousands of people who just, this is what they've been taught. And it it's can be excruciating to kind of walk away from that because you're not just walking away from those teachings, which is very hard because you're told that your very soul is at stake. You leave this church, you leave this community, right? You you reject these teachings, you will spend eternity in hell. Uh, and, and then there's the fact that this is your whole world. This is your whole community. These are your people. These are the people you love. These are the people you know. And and in many cases, evangelicalism becomes this world for people that you don't just attend church, although you, you know, you do often, you're, you're a member of church, then you're a member of a small group in that church. So you're meeting every week with this close group of families. Your kids are going to Sunday school and to youth group. And it's really designed to be your social world, your primary social world. And so when you start to reject this, then uh, it, the costs are extremely high. And in many cases, it severs you from your own family. Right. So, um, so there's that, but I think that, that we have to understand that many people genuinely believe this is what it means to be faithful. And when you look at kind of the, the Bible studies, the devotionals, the Christian radio, this kind of a whole, um, popular culture that really cultivates people's values, these teachings run deep that you submit that you, you know, you put others in, in front of yourselves, particularly if you're a woman and, and it's compelling to some women. And then again, the costs are so high if you decide to, to walk away. On the, the culture thing, another really interesting aspect of the, the rise of this is the, I don't know how to, the kind of shifting away from the church and like official doctrine as the center of faith to the broader it's not non-denominational but like the broader kind of the broader culture and then all of the all of the marketing that goes along with it all of the product stuff the the rise of christian booksellers and so on but it just it seems like there's this really interesting just like overlay of commerce and then in a lot of cases just like outright grift um that feels very different from the way that we like often think about the religion and how one relates to like it's you're kind of relating to it the same way that like Disney fans relate to Disney as opposed to the way that like you know typically the member of a church would relate to their their church hierarchy. Yeah, one of the the things that this book does, a kind of intervention in this scholarship on evangelicalism, is that. Uh, for a long time, historians, scholars of evangelicalism defined evangelical, uh, evangelicals according to their theology. So they uphold the authority of the scriptures, their conversionists, this born again experience, their biblicists, you know, t- and, and so on. And uh, so when I, I, I assumed that's what I was going to do. And then when I actually started at, to look at the evidence in front of me, I thought this, this is not actually what we're talking about here. And so I don't actually offer a crisp definition of evangelicalism. I I describe it. And I describe it as a series of networks and alliances and largely as a consumer culture. And so what is evangelicalism? You, You need to look at Christian radio, look at Christian publishing. And these, these, uh, kind of distribution networks reach millions of hundreds of millions of Americans. And then we could talk also around the world. 
And this is, um, you can see the development of this over the course of the 20th century, where what it is to be Christian kind of shifts from, you know, to attend a church, to be a part of a denomination, to adhere to a kind of theology. Increasingly, uh, it becomes market driven. And now people who were selling these books, who were building these networks, who were, uh, you know, coming together, the Christian Booksellers Association, building Christian bookstores, they are doing that all in the name of evangelism, right? If you, if you hear them, but they're also making a ton of money and it, it conveniently goes hand in hand. And this is how evangelicalism has operated. Much of this is not, we're not talking nonprofits in many cases. These are for-profit industries and highly profitable precisely because the inside this ideology is the idea that everything on the outside is dangerous, right? Secularism, secular humanism, secular psychology, you know, secular generals, all of that is, is dangerous, the secular media. So you have to, you have to consume distinctively Christian everything, which means there's a really great and lucrative market there. For particularly for conservative Christian products, right? And then, and then you can just see this develop through the Christian Booksellers Association, this web of Christian bookstores, Christian music industry. This is massive. When I was writing Jesus and John Wayne, my editor, who comes from completely outside this world, more than once flagged things as these sales figures can't be accurate. Right. Where did you get these publication numbers for this book? Uh, you know, he's like, you have to understand publishers are always inflating their numbers. So, you know, we need to vet this. And I said, oh, I, I got it in the New York Times. This, And he's like, oh, never mind. Then it's vetted. Had no idea that we are talking tens of millions of sales of these books. And this entire world is almost invisible to anybody outside of it because the New York Times doesn't include these books on their bestseller list because they know their readers aren't interested, right? It's a curated list. And so it remains hidden from other Americans that this whole world exists, but there are tens of millions of us in this country who have been immersed in these spaces, right? And I think that's just really important to recognize. And it is a, a space where over time you can see particular theological distinctions in many cases doctrinal um, distinctions have receded in significance and social and political and cultural values have increasingly come to define what is orthodox and what is acceptable and what is out of bounds. How much then are the the leaders in this, I guess, genuine versus salesmen, hucksters, so on? So I'm thinking of people like um, like Falwell or Robertson or LaHaye or Dobson, like how much are they seeing this? They're they're like, I'm going to do this because it makes me a ton of money and gets me power and prestige and whatever versus I am like a true believer. I have never been able to successfully tease that out on the part of leaders. I have not because I think, and, and I think we, we could bring in some psychologists here to have a better sense, but I think at a certain point, you convince yourself that what you're doing is righteous. And there's this whole kind of mentality that you know, if you are successful, that, that means God's blessing you. So that affirms what it is that you're doing. And you know, we all want to think that what works out well for us is also a good thing. It's righteous. And so I think that there's a lot of that going on. There are certainly also the grifters. And it can be really hard to tell the two apart. 
And, but more than leaders, I think we have to look just beneath that level of those who are actively participating and propping up these leaders. And, you know, that's honestly was the most shocking thing to me when, particularly around the area of exposing abuse. And, you know, yes, you're always going to have the bad guys. You're always going to have abusers in your midst. You have them outside of evangelicalism too. But what I kept seeing when I would look at these cases of abusive pastors, abusive fathers, leaders in these evangelical spaces was how the communities responded and over and over again, the same patterns, which is defend the abuser. These are people who, again, like their whole core teachings were on sexual morality and men are supposed to be protectors and and purity and all of this. And yet none of that mattered when it came to propping up the authority of their leader, of the predator and protecting the brand. Right. And and this wasn't just one off. This was over and over again. And so you can see how people get brought into these spaces and absolutely become convinced that uh, you know, they are doing God's will and they're doing God's will and propping up the authority of their leader. So the people at the top, I think there's a mix, but many of the participants and the vast majority are true believers. And in participating in these systems, they also know that, you know, in these pastors, lesser significant pastors in these networks and coalitions, they know that by um, showing deference to those with more power in these spaces is an avenue for themselves to also get more power, to have those book deals, to get that slot on the main stage at the big preacher's conference, right? But they do this all by telling themselves that they're doing God's work and patting each other on the back and calling each other brother in Christ. That role of, I guess, call it Outside criticism, galvanizing certainty that what we're doing is right, picks up on a theme that's come up in a number of the things you've said so far in our conversation, which is this like us versus them and persecution mentality. And and it it comes out as this kind of bizarre tension of claiming both strength and weakness, that we are, we are like manly men. We are God's chosen people. This is God's country. Jesus is this warrior in our cause, and we're warriors in his cause. It's this like we're we're tough guys. But then at the same time, we are constantly under threat from everybody. And it's not – I mean there's military threats, but there's also just like we're, we're threatened by like this gay couple down the block – you know, like this very like what looks like real weakness or or it shows up in, you know, gender roles are traditional gender roles are both natural and ordained by God. But at the same time, unless they are constantly reinforced, they will fall apart. And it's it's just it's odd. It looks very odd from the outside. And I'm wondering how much that tension is recognized internally and how it's how it's wrestled with. Oh, this is a really getting to the heart of things. And this tension is very real. And for uh, initially, I kind of saw it framed as from outsiders, as 
you know, and insiders, evangelicals were just so afraid, right? This is kind of the, the pundits of 2016. Evangelicals were afraid. We have demographic change. We have, you know, the change on uh, LGBTQ, Obergefell. We had, a, you know, African-American Democratic President Barack Hussein Obama, right? All these things. And so what choice did they have but to, you know, run into the arms of Donald Trump was kind of one of the the media narratives out there. And, and um, in my research, there's this, one of the chapters in the book, it's kind of a weird chapter. And it, it's about um, post 9-11, where you have these ex-Muslim terrorists who take the speaking circuit by storm, evangelical speaking circuit. So these are men who had been um, uh, Islamic terrorists, so they said, and had um, persecuted Christians and wanted to kill Christians and then had these miraculous conversion experiences, became evangelical Christians themselves. And then they traveled around to churches and, you know, through evangelical media and college campuses to tell their story about how dangerous radical Islam was. And um, and they made a lot of money doing this. Well, uh, one of these guys came to my uh, college uh, back in the day. Uh, I teach at a Christian university, Calvin University, and uh, my colleague, who's an an, uh, expert in Ottoman history, immediately, immediately could say, this guy's making stuff up. This is just not accurate. And um, so he reached out to the guy's sponsor, who was Focus on the Family, talked to the president of Focus on the Family, found out they knew he was a fraud. All of these guys, complete frauds, completely made up their histories. They were not terrorists. Some were even kind of not even, you know, Muslim for the most part, you know, grew up with his mom, who was a Swedish Lutheran. Um, So completely made up these stories. But important thing is, even though they were known frauds, they were still put out there. And, And some of them are still working today, telling the same stories. That's when it clicked for me. I realized that this relationship between fear and militancy, what comes first? Is it that militancy is a response to fear or is it that the militancy comes first and that leaders actively stoke fear in the hearts of their followers to consolidate their own power? And once that clicked into place, I could see it in Falwell Sr.'s Thomas Road Baptist Church, absolutely, in Mark Driscoll's Mars Hill Church. I mean, Mark Driscoll liked to um, preach. When he preached, he was flanked by security guards. Right, always this notion of danger, danger, um, and and when you can sell that, then you can demand absolute loyalty from your followers, and then all of your behavior, your pugnacious behavior, your crassness, you know, your unchristlikeness, that's all okay because this is war. In the time of war, if you're not with us, you're against us. You're a traitor, and give all your money, give all your loyalty, and do not criticize the leader. And once I saw that, I realized we just have to flip the script. In so many cases, the militancy comes first and that generates then the fear in order to sustain its power. Yeah, I think, I can't remember who it is, but you quote someone talking about as kind of bad as Trump is, we need someone like that because at least he's going to punch the people we don't like. Oh yeah. So many, you know, he's the, Robert Jeffress, you know, he's the meanest, toughest son, son of a, you know what that, you know, and that's exactly who we need. Or he's our ultimate fighting champion, you know, so evangelicals were saying. So there was something really cathartic that, you know, within that framework, 
what you do want the the toughest, meanest, you know, son of a you know what, because traditional Christian values, virtues, kindness, gentleness, love, self-control, right? This is what the scriptures say it means to be Christian. This is what Christians should look like. That isn't going to get you where you want to go. And so Trump was actually, uh, it wasn't that so many were holding their noses to vote for Trump. Among a, a not insignificant faction of conservative evangelicals, he was exactly what they wanted. He was better than any actual practicing Christian because he was unconstrained by these virtues, unconstrained by civility. And that's exactly what they wanted. He said he would fight to protect them. And, uh, you know, that's what he did. And not just protect, but, you know, privilege them. So how do we, what do we do about this? Because it's, there are the, the outward negative effects of this culture have been pretty damaging. And as we see the rise of white Christian nationalism and the the explicit versions of it in in Congress uh, and and its ties to what often look like kind of proto-fascist movements in American politics. Uh, this is this is fairly scary stuff for those of us committed to like robust liberalism in in our politics and culture. But you have you have a community that has, as you said, that the militancy has then been used to teach them to basically fear everyone, to see they constantly see criticism as a sign that they're doing something right. Um, they are really convinced that they are being persecuted in in this odd my friend the historian Paul Matsko, historian of the American right, has remarked to me that he thinks like white Christian evangelicals in America are probably the least persecuted religious minority in history, but are just wildly convinced. So there's this, there's this siege mentality. Um, and then all of this is bound up in the, if we don't do this, if we don't make America Christian in the way that we think of Christianity, God will punish all of us. Like very bad things will happen to all of us. That seems like you, it would be hard to design an ideology that is would be more difficult to kind of talk people out of than that. So what do we – how do we address it? Is there like any hope in kind of rolling back given that it was – this wasn't the way things always were. This is a relatively recent development. Is there a possibility of kind of bringing things back to a more, I guess, palatable and compatible with a liberal society direction? First, I agree with your pessimism here. And, uh, you know, when I got to the end of this book before it went into production, just, just at the last minute, I got an email from my, an edit, from my editor saying, you know, uh, Kristen, this is a really depressing book. And, and I said, yeah, it is. And then he wrote back and said, no, actually, that's a problem. Like you, you actually can't do this to your readers. You've got to give us something. And so I, I spent the afternoon kind of looking through the manuscript. And, and then I, I wrote back and said, I've got nothing. Like, this is not a good story. 
Uh, and he said, okay, I respect that. And and then he wrote back the next day and said, just give us anything. So I reworked the last, the very last uh, part of the book and, and t- gave him that last sentence. What was once done might also be undone. And it felt so feeble at the time, but <laughs> and, and it probably is, but uh, it meant something to a lot of readers. But what I, what I will say is that when this book published, which is three years ago now, um, I expected some real pushback from conservative white evangelicals, and I have gotten some. What I did not expect was the incredibly enthusiastic response to the book and to the critique from white evangelicals themselves. I have received probably over 2,000 messages and letters from evangelical readers saying, this is the story of my life, and thank you for helping me to see. And, and so I find some encouragement there. But what do we do? So this is where things get tricky. Um, because I think there is a tension between the diagnosis and the cure. I'm good at diagnosis, right? There's not a lot of hope here, but let me tell you all of the ways that, you know, how this works and why it's so dangerous. That's the diagnosis. But what's the cure? I think the cure is, you know, it's, it's reaching those folks on the inside, the moderates, those who did not fully understand what they were a part of, but now are, have a little openness to see. And so in the, in the broader context, if you want to look at histories of fascism, for example, what we're talking about are in-group moderates. And we know that fascism works by brutally attacking, isolating and attacking in-group moderates. And so you see that happening in evangelical spaces. <laughs> Just look at the hate David French gets, Russell Moore. Beth Moore, right? These folks, me to a certain extent, although I've never really been one of them, but you know, as a Christian, I'll, I'll get, I'll get my share. Uh, and that is very intentional. It sends a message to all the others on the inside that we will destroy you. We will destroy you if you cross us on, on what? On not supporting Trump, on calling out abuse, on questioning this patriarchal order, any of that, you know, LGBTQ, absolutely. We will crush you, right? The costs will be high. So what should the rest of Americans do? And this is something I've, I've been talking to a lot of people about, but I would say at least understand that dynamic and understand what's happening inside these evangelical spaces. And if in fact, you know, the histories are correct, that it's the disappearance of the center right that is the kind of key facilitator of an authoritarian regime taking hold, what are ways that the left can de-escalate and reach folks there, bolster them, strengthen them, and invite them into this broader pro-democracy coalition. That's what I'm looking at right now. And that's going to take, you know, some work on the part of folks from outside these spaces too, to keep in mind that yes, there are extremists here. And yes, there are many who are complicit in propping up that extremism. How do you reach those folks? with a liberal, pro-democracy kind of vision. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. You can also join our Discord listener community and book club by following the link in the show notes. Reimagining Liberty is a project of the Unpopulist and is produced by Landry Ayers. 